0: Hey guys, welcome back to Legalese. I am Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, I have some breaking news for you guys here. Uh, we have the Supreme Court's decision finally in the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, and uh it it's really good news it's a really good case um so anyways i i'll link to the full case brief down below in the video description but it is uh really long it's 135 pages uh and i just got through reading it and i figured what i would do here is uh kind i've gone through uh and highlighted the key points in the primary holding and the and the majority opinion that are the information that people who are really interested in this case will really want to know. So I'm going to try and give you guys a a quick summary here of the case, hopefully in about 20 minutes or so, if I can. Uh, And then I'm sure I'll make a longer video going into a lot of the historical stuff and talking about the dissenting opinions at another time. But right now, I just want to get the important information
1: out to you because this is uh, really, really good. I'm really excited about this. So, as I think most people are probably at least somewhat aware, uh, the history
0: behind this case was that the state of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home, and that any individual who wants to carry a firearm outside the home may obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver if he can prove that proper cause exists for doing so. And in New York, proper cause does not just mean a general right of self-defense. You have to have some kind of articulable threat against you, uh, like some specific threat or specific reason,
1: and they essentially make it impossible to get a license uh, to have a gun for self-defense. So going to the case's primary holding, and this was
0: written by Justice Clearance Thomas, so you know it's going to be very, very good. Anyways, uh, so uh, held... New York's Proper Cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising
1: their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. In District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald
0: v. Chicago, the court held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Under Heller, when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct The Constitution presumptively protects that conduct, and to justify a firearm regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Since Heller and MacDonald, the Courts of Appeals have developed a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combine history with a means and scrutiny the court rejects this two-part approach as having one step too many. Step one is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support a second step that applies a means-ends scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text and history, it did not invoke any means tests such as a strict or intermediate scrutiny, and it expressly rejected an interest-balancing inquiry that would be akin to intermediate judicial scrutiny. Historical analysis can sometimes be difficult and nuanced, but reliance on history to inform the meaning of the Constitution's text is more legitimate and more administrable than asking a judge to make difficult empirical judgments about the cost and benefits of firearms restrictions,
1: especially given their lack of expertise in the field. They say federal courts tasked
0: with making difficult empirical judgments regarding firearms regulations under the banner of intermediate scrutiny often defer to the determinations of legislatures, while judicial deference to legislative intent Uh, is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not deference that the Constitution demands here. And they say, the Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. They say the tests that the court set forth in Heller, and applies today, require courts to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and history. Of course, the regulatory challenges posed by firearms today are not always the same as those that preoccupied the Founders in 1791 or the Reconstruction generation in 1868, but the Constitution... Must apply to circumstances beyond the founders specifically anticipated, beyond those the founders specifically anticipated, even though its meaning is fixed according to the understanding of those who ratified it. Indeed, the court recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms does not apply only to those in existence in the 18th century. To determine whether a firearm regulation is consistent with the Second Amendment, Heller and McDonald point toward a, uh, at least two relevant metrics. First, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self defense. And second, whether that regulatory burden is comparably justified. Because individual self defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right, These two metrics are central considerations when engaging in an analogical inquiry. To be clear, they go on. Even if a modern-day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it may still be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. For example, courts can use analogies to long-standing laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings to determine whether modern regulations are constitutionally permissible. That said, respondents' attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place law lacks merit because there is no historical basis for New York to effectively declare the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive place simply because it is crowded and protected generally by the New York Police Department. Having made the constitutional standard endorsed in Heller more explicit, the court applies that standard to New York's proper uh, proper cause requirement. It is undisputed that petitioners, Cook and Nash, to ordinary law-abiding adult citizens are part of the people to whom the Second Amendment protects. And no party disputes that handguns are weapons in common use today for self-defense. The court has little difficulty concluding, also, that the plain text of the Second Amendment protects Cook and Nash's proposed course of conduct carrying handguns publicly for self-defense. Nothing in the Second Amendment text draws a home public distinction with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, and the definition of bear naturally encompasses public carry. Moreover, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, and
1: confrontation can surely take place outside the home. They go on to say that the burden then falls on the respondent to show that New York's proper cause requirement is
0: consistent with its national uh, historical tradition of firearm regulation. To do so, respondents appealed to a variety of historical sources from the late 1200s to the early 1900s. But when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, not all history is created equal. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted him as a ruling in Heller states. The Second Amendment was adopted in 1791 and the 14th in 1868. Historical evidence that long predates or post dates either time may not illuminate the scope of the right. With these principles in mind, the court concludes that respondents have failed to meet their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement. The respondents' substantial reliance on English history and custom before the founding does make some sense. Given Heller's statement that the Second Amendment codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. But the court finds that history ambiguous at best and sees little reason to think that the framers would have thought it applicable to the New World. The court cannot conclude from the historical record that, by the time of the founding, English law would have justified restricting the right to publicly bearing arms suited for self defense only to those who demonstrate
1: some special need for self protection. Only after the ratification of the Second Amendment in
0: 1791 did public carry restrictions proliferate. Respondents have relied heavily on these restrictions, which generally fall into three categories, common law offense, statutory prohibition, and surety statutes. None of these restrictions imposed by, uh, impose a substantial burden on public carry analogous to that imposed by New York's restricting license regime. In sum... The historical evidence from Antebellum America does demonstrate that the manner of public carry was subject to reasonable regulation, but none of these limitations on the right to bear arms operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose. Evidence from around the adoption of the 14th Amendment also does not support the respondent's position the discussion of the right to keep and bear arms in Congress and in public discourse, as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves, generally demonstrated that during Reconstruction the right to keep and bear arms had limits that were consistent
1: with the right of the public to peaceably carry handguns for self-defense. Finally. Respondents point to a
0: slight uptick in gun regulation during the late 19th century. As the court suggested in Heller, however, late 19th century evidence cannot provide much insight into the meaning of the Second Amendment when it contradicts earlier evidence. Overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition permits public carry. After reviewing the Anglo-American history of public carry, the court concludes that respondents have not met their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement apart from a few outlier jurisdictions. American governments simply have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal self-defense, nor have they generally required law-abiding responsible citizens to demonstrate a special need for self-defense for self-protection, distinguishable from that of the general community to carry arms in public. The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. The exercise of other constitutional rights does not require individuals to demonstrate to government officers some special need. The Second Amendment's right to carry arms in public for self defense is no different. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law abiding citizens with ordinary self defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. And now we are
1: moving on to uh, Justice Thomas's uh, majority opinion for the court. Here he says. In District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald v. Chicago, we recognize that
0: the Second and Fourteenth Amendment protect the right of an ordinary law-abiding citizen to to possess a handgun in the home for self-defense. In this case, petitioners and respondents agree that ordinary law-abiding citizens have a similar right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense. We too agree, and now hold consistent with Heller and McDonald, that the Second and Fourteenth Amendment protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. The parties nevertheless dispute whether New York's licensing regime respects the constitutional right to carry handguns publicly for self-defense. In 43 states, the government issues licenses to carry based on objective criteria, but in six states, including New York, the government has further conditions on issuance to a license on carry on a citizen showing some kind of special need. Because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. And this is pretty much exactly what I had told you guys to expect. If you look back to the video I made a couple days ago talking about how uh, Tim Tim Poole doesn't get the Bruin case, uh, and I said that really the most likely outcome is that where we have these uh, eight different jurisdictions uh, where you can't get a, a license to carry a handgun. And so we'll probably end up, uh, you know, changing the, the laws in those eight different jurisdictions. Uh, and it looks like that's exactly what this is going to do. So essentially, uh, well, well, in this law, you it, you have to understand a judgment and a precedent are not the same thing. So this judgment only extends to New York. But the extent of this precedent will probably only be to turn the other uh, six may issue states into shall issue states that essentially uh, cannot deny you a license if you are a uh, a law-abiding citizen uh, applying for a handgun permit, uh, you know, for self-defense and other lawful
1: purposes. So, moving on with the majority opinion here. They say New York State has regulated the public
0: carry of handguns since at least the early 20th century. New York made it a misdemeanor for anyone under the age of 16 to have or carry a concealed weapon on his person. Uh, let's see. Issue, uh, New York later amended the Sullivan Law to clarify a licensing standard. Magistrates could issue to a person a license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver without regard to employment or possessing such weapon only if the person provided good moral character and proper cause. Today’s lic- licensing scheme largely tracks that of the early 1900s. It is a crime in New York to possess any firearm without a license, whether inside or outside of the home, and it’s punishable by up to four years in prison or a $5,000 fine, and is a felony offense. A licensed applicant who wants to possess a firearm at home in his place of business must convince a licensing officer, usually a judge or law enforcement officer, that, among other things, he is of good moral character, has no history of criminal or mental illness, and that he and that no good cause exists for the denial of the license. If he wants to carry a firearm outside his home or place of business for self-defense, the applicant must obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver. To secure that license, the applicant must prove the proper cause exists to issue it. If an applicant cannot make that showing, he can receive only a restricted license for
1: public carry, which allows him to carry firearms for very limited purposes, such as hunting, target shooting, or employment. Now, importantly, they go on to say, no New York statute defines proper cause. But New York courts
0: have held that an applicant shows proper cause only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. This special need standard is demanding. For example, living or working in an area noted for criminal activity will not suffice. Rather, New York courts generally generally require evidence of particular threats, attacks, or other extraordinary danger to personal safety. The police uh, department's requirement of extraordinary personal danger documented by proof of recurrent threats to life or safety, and when a licensing officer denies an application, judicial review is limited. New York courts defer to an officer's application of the proper clause standard unless they see it as arbitrary and capricious. In other words, the decision must be upheld if the record shows a rational basis for it. This rule leaves applicants little recourse if their local licensing officer denies them a permit. New York is not alone in requiring a permit to carry a handgun, but in the vast majority of states, 43 by our count, They are shall issue jurisdictions where authorities must issue a concealed carry license whenever the applicant uh, can satisfy certain threshold requirements without granting licensing officials discretion to deny the license based on a perceived need uh, or suitability. And they say, meanwhile, only six states and the District of Columbia have a may-issue licensing law under which authorities have discretion to deny concealed carry licenses even when the applicant satisfies the statutory criteria, usually because the applicant has not demonstrated cause or suitability for the relevant license. Aside from New York, then, only California, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and... New Jersey, have analogous to the proper cause standard. All of these proper cause analogs have been upheld by the Courts of Appeal save for the District of Columbia, which has been permanently enjoined since 2017. As set forth in the pleadings below, petitioners Brandon Cook and Robert Nash are law-abiding adult citizens of uh, Rensselaer County of New York. Uh, Cook lives in Troy, while Nash lives in Avril Park. Petitioner Uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association is a public interest group uh, organized to defend Second Amendment rights of New Yorkers. Both Nash and Cook are members. In 2014, Nash applied for an unrestricted license to carry a handgun in public. He did not claim any unique danger to his personal safety. Uh, In 2015, the state denied Nash's application for an unrestricted license, but only
1: granted a restricted license for hunting and target shooting purposes. And Nash asked the licensing officer to remove restrictions, citing a string of recent robberies in his
0: neighborhood. After an informal hearing, the licensed officer denied the request. The officer reiterated that Nash's existing license permitted him to carry concealed for purposes of off-road backcountry outdoor activities similar to hunting, such as fishing, hiking, and camping. But at the same time, the officer emphasized that the restrictions were intended to prohibit Nash
1: from carrying concealed in any location typically open to and frequented by the general public. They say respondents are the superintendent of New York State Police who
0: oversee the enforcement of the state license laws and a New York State Supreme Court justice who oversees the processing of licensing applications. Petitioners sued respondents for declaratory and injunctive relief under 42 U.S.C. section 1983, uh, alleging that the respondents violated their Second Amendment and 14th Amendment rights by
1: denying their unrestricted application on the basis that they had failed to show a proper cause. They go on to say that we grant a certiorari to decide whether New York's
0: denial of petitioner's license uh, applications violated the Constitution. And they say, in Heller and McDonald, we held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protected individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. In doing so, we held unconstitutional two laws that prohibited the possession for the use of handguns in the home. In the years since, the courts of appeals have coalesced around a two-step framework for for analyzing the Second Amendment challenges that combine history with a means-ends scrutiny. Today, we decline to adopt that two-part approach. In keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition May a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. They say since Heller and McDonald, a two-step test that the courts of appeals have developed to uh, assess the Second Amendment proceeds as follows. The first step, the government may justify its regulation by establishing that the challenge law regulates activity falling outside the scope of the right as ordinarily understood the Court of Appeals then ascertains the original scope of the right based on its historical meaning. If the government can prove that the regulated conduct falls beyond the amendment's original scope, then the analysis can stop there. The regulated activity is categorically unprotected, but if historical evidence at this step is inconclusive or suggests that the regulated activity is not categorically unprotected, the courts generally proceed to step two. At the second step, courts often analyze how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right and the severity of the law's burden on that right. The Court of Appeals generally maintain that the core core Second Amendment right is limited to self-defense in the home. The amendment's core generally covers caring in public for self-defense. If a core Second Amendment right is burdened, Courts apply strict scrutiny and ask whether the government can prove that a law is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling government interest. Otherwise, they apply intermediate scrutiny and consider whether the government can show that the regulation is substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest both respondents and the United States largely agree with the consensus arguing that the intermediate scrutiny is appropriate when text and history
1: are unclear in attempting to delineate the scope of the right. Thomas goes on to say that despite the popularity of this two-step approach, it is one step
0: too many. Step one of the predominant framework is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support applying a means-ends scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. To show why Heller does not support applying a means ends scrutiny, we first summarize Heller's methodological approach in the Second Amendment. In Heller, we begin with a textual analysis focused on the normal and ordinary meaning of the Second Amendment's language. That analysis suggested that the amendment's operative clause. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed guarantees an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation that does not depend on service in the militia. From there, we assessed whether our initial conclusion was confirmed by the historical background of the Second Amendment. We look to history because it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right. The amendment was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. After surveying English history dating from the late 1600s along with the American colonial views leading up to the founding, we found no doubt on the basis of both text and history that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms. We then canvassed the historical record and found yet further confirmation that the history includes the analogous arms-bearing rights in state constitutions that preceded and immediately followed the adoption of the Second Amendment, and how the Second Amendment was interpreted from immediately after its ratification through the end of the late 19th century. When the principal dissent charged that the latter category of sources was illegitimate, post-enactment legislative history, uh, that was from the uh, dissenting opinion of Justice Stevens, we clarified that examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of a legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification was a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. In assessing the post-ratification history, we looked to four different types of sources. First, we reviewed three important founding-era legal scholars who interpreted the Second Amendment in their published writings, Second, we looked to 19th century cases that interpreted
1: the Second Amendment and found them to universally support an individual right to keep and bear arms. Third, we examined the discussion of the Second Amendment in
0: Congress and in public discourse after the Civil War as people debated whether and how to start uh, to secure excuse me, constitutional rights for newly freed slaves. Fourth, we considered how post-Civil War commentators understood that right. After holding that the Second Amendment protected an individual right of armed self-defense, we also relied on the historical understanding of the amendment to demark the limits of the exercise of that right. We noted that like most rights, the right secured in the Second Amendment is not unlimited. From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon, whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, for whatever purpose. For example, we found it fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting and carrying a dangerous or unusual, excuse me, dangerous and unusual weapon, that is an important distinction, dangerous and unusual, conjunctive, that the Second Amendment protects the possession and use of weapons that are in common use at the time. And that comes from Blackstone's commentaries on the common law. Then turning to United States versus Miller, we, found, we cautioned that we were not undertaking an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment and moved on to considering the constitutionality of the District of Columbia's handgun ban. We assessed the lawfulness of that handgun ban by scrutinizing whether it comported with the history and tradition, although we noted that the ban would fail constitutional muster under any of the standards of scrutiny that we have applied to enumerated constitutional rights. We did not engage in a means and scrutiny when resolving the constitutional question. Instead, we focus on the historically unprecedented nature of the district's ban observing that few laws in the history of our nation have come close to that restriction. Likewise, when one of the dissents attempted to justify the district's prohibition with a founding-era historical precedent, including various restrictive laws in the colonial period, we addressed each purported analog and concluded that they were either irrelevant or did not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns. Thus, our Earlier historical analysis sufficed to show that the Second Amendment did not countenance a complete prohibition on the use of the
1: most popular weapons chosen by Americans for self-defense in the home. And moving on to an especially important part here. As the foregoing shows, Heller's methodology
0: centered on constitutional text and history when it came to defining the character of the right as individual or militia-dependent ...suggesting the outer limits of that right or assessing the constitutionality of a particular regulation, Heller relied on text and history. It did not invoke a means and test such as strict or intermediate scrutiny. Moreover, Heller and MacDonald expressly rejected the application of any judge-empowering interest-balancing inquiry that asks whether the statute burdens a protected interest in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the statute's salutary effects upon the important government interests. The Second Amendment does not permit, let alone require, judges to assess the costs and benefits of firearm restrictions under a means-ends scrutiny. We decline to engage in a means-ends scrutiny because the very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. We then concluded a constitutional guarantee subject to a future judge's assessment of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. Not only did Heller decline to engage in a means-ends scrutiny generally, but it is also specifically ruled out in the intermediate scrutiny test that respondents in the United States now urge us to adopt. Dissenting in Heller, Justice Breyer proposed a standard of asking whether a statute burdens a protected interest in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the statute's salutary effect upon other important government interests. Simply expressed a classical formulation of intermediate scrutiny, but in a slightly different way, and in fact, Justice Breyer all but admitted that in his Heller dissent, and he advocated for such intermediate scrutiny by repeatedly invoking the quintessential um, uh, intermediate scrutiny precedent. Thus, when Heller expressly rejected that dissent of an interest-balancing inquiry, it necessarily rejected intermediate scrutiny. In sum, the Court of Appeals' second step is inconsistent with Heller's historical approach and its rejection of a means and scrutiny. We reiterate that the standard for applying the Second Amendment is as follows. When the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. The government must then justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearms regulations. Only then may a court conclude that an individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. The Second Amendment standard accords with how we protect other constitutional rights, take for instance, the freedom of speech in the First Amendment, to which Heller repeatedly compared the right to keep and bear arms. In that context, when the government restricts speech, the government bears the burden of proving
1: the constitutionality of its actions. In some cases, that
0: burden includes showing whether the expressive conduct falls outside of the category of protected speech, and to carry that burden, the government must generally point to historical evidence about the reach of the First Amendment's protections. Placing the burden on the government to show that a type of speech belongs to a historic and traditional category of constitutionally unprotected speech long familiar to the bar, and beyond the freedom of, spe- of speech, our focus on history also comports with how we assess many other constitutional claims. If a litigant asserts the right in court to be confronted with the witnesses against him, the U.S. Constitution Amendment Number 6, we require courts to consult history to determine the scope of the right to be sure historical analysis can be difficult; it sometimes requires resolving threshold questions and making nuanced judgments about which evidence to consult and how to interpret it. but reliance on history to inform the meaning of a constitutional text, especially text meant to codify a pre-existing right, is in our view. More legitimate and more administrable than asking judges to make difficult empirical judgments about the cost and benefits of firearm restrictions, especially given their lack of expertise in the field. If the last decade of Second Amendment litigation has taught this court anything, it is that the federal court, tasked with making such difficult empirical judgments regarding firearms regulations under the banner of intermediate scrutiny, Often defer to the determination of legislatures. But while that judicial deference to legislative interest balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not deference that the Constitution demands here. The Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests. The right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. It is this balance, struck by the tradition of the American people, that demands
1: our unqualified deference. Well, I think that gives you guys a pretty good uh, idea
0: of what they are, where they are going with this. There's more uh, to uh, analyze here. I'm sure I will be putting out uh, a fuller video on this in the coming day or two. Uh, but I, I just wanted to get this out. This is really, really good news. Um, and uh, yeah, the fact that they have rejected intermediate scrutiny or, or they, that they have rejected judicial scrutiny was a big surprise. And in fact, that's something a lot of uh, uh, two a advocates were worried about when Hillary and McDonald happened. was why why didn't they apply? Some means of judicial scrutiny, so we know how far this right can be curtailed if it can be curtailed at all and to have them say here that we didn't apply a judicial scrutiny because there isn't one because it falls above that is a very, very big deal. It's very good um and anyways, like I said a little bit ago, uh essentially, what we can uh take away from this is that uh the may issue uh state regimes for licensing uh handguns is is pretty much done with. I, I mean you have to convert a judgment to a precedent. So this doesn't mean that all states excuse me that all states right now that have a uh may issue licensing scheme no longer have that. This only applies to New York. That's very important to keep in mind. But it does sound like uh any may issue licensing scheme is quickly on its way out and i'm sure that in no time we will have citizens in all of the other states that have a may issue scheme uh suing uh and trying to enjoin their state to a shall issue state such as this so this is very good news i'm very excited um this is a very good decision so that's all i really got for you guys today um yeah, just like usual, if you're not subscribed to the channel, you really should be subscribed. Uh, I'm going to be putting out a lot more stuff on this case as, as more information on it comes out, and there's more to talk about here. So uh, if you're interested in stuff like Second Amendment analysis, uh, definitely make sure to subscribe to the channel. Uh, and, uh, you know, help help me, uh, you know, feed Al Gore's rhythm by, uh, you know, leaving a comment and uh, hitting that little thumbs yuppie button down there if you like the video. Uh, if you want to be a dick, you can hit the thumbsy-downy button to say you dislike the video. It's totally your choice, of course. Uh, but anyways, yeah, this is all I really got for you guys today. So uh, thank you so much for giving me some of your time here. And uh, I'm sure I will be back, uh, if if not later today, certainly by tomorrow with uh, a video really kind of an, analyzing the full uh, text of this and getting into what they said in the dissent and giving you some additional analysis. I was just pretty much reading the decision right out for you here. So, anyways, yep,
1: take care, guys. Oh, of course, and as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. mother